All right. If you have a Bible, I invite you to turn to the book of Mark, Mark chapter 3, as we conclude chapter 3 uh, this morning. As you're going there, just a quick um, update uh, from uh, my situation, my progress here. Um, all is, is uh, going well. We are uh, making uh, progress, and we are thankful uh, for that. Uh, I'm able to put some weight on my leg now, and so that's a good thing. Uh, still on the crutches, and will be so for uh, the next uh, four weeks still. And then at that time, we're hoping that I'll be able to be weight-bearing uh, fully at that time. Uh, we thank you for your continued prayers, and uh, for those who've uh, been helpful uh, to me at this time, thank you very much. Appreciate that, and uh, appreciate, again, your continued prayers. Uh, we're thankful for um, several who had been uh, out with some illness uh, that are here today and back. We're thankful to see John Forshee and Dave Nichol, Mike Radke, and uh, some of the others who had been uh, ill. We're thankful for recovery uh, for them, and we rejoice in that. Matthew, Mark chapter 3, in your Bibles, if you're using a pew Bible this morning, that's page 838. Listen as I just read these uh, five verses. And his mother and his brothers came, and standing outside, they sent to him and said, and called him. And the crowd was sitting around him, and they said to him, your mother and your brothers are outside seeking you. And he answered them, who are my mother and brothers? And looking about at those who sat around him, he said, here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of God is my brother and sister and mother. Let's pray. Father, we ask for your help today as we look into your word. Give us insight. Uh, help this, uh, this preacher this morning to seek to honor you and um, be faithful to your word. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, you may have heard the statement before, uh, we're all the children of God. Ever heard that before? Ever hear someone say that before? Uh, we might understand what they're saying if by that they mean uh, we're all created by God, and therefore we bear the image of God. Uh, maybe in that way we could agree that we are all the children of God. Uh, but really, uh, we're not all the children of God as in part of God's family. Uh, those who believe that everyone is a child of God lean into uh, what could be called a, a, a belief of, of universalism. Kind of everybody's going to be saved. Everybody's going to get to heaven eventually. Somehow, some way, we're all going to get there. Maybe we'll get there a different way than somebody else, but we're all going to get, kind of get, kind of get there eventually. And, and because God is love, right, God's love. And so we're all going to get there. And so because God's love is in conflict with judgments um, and um, everlasting judgments, uh, sometimes these doctrines are dismissed or at least de-emphasized. Now, this may seem obviously untrue to many of us, um, but to be clear, if anyone, um, if everyone will actually, if everyone will eventually come to God, um, then, then what is the point of Jesus? Uh, what is the point of the Bible talking about sin? What is the point of the Bible talking about faith and repentance? What is the point of the Bible talking about everlasting uh, judgment? Uh, though this may seem straightforward to many of us, there are preachers who push this kind of teaching. 
Uh, there are those who, who blur the line so as not to offend, so as to kind of build everybody in, into the fold. Uh, it's a false hope um, bent on cultural approval. In 2005, uh, Larry King, um, the late Larry King, interviewed pastor and author Joel Olstein. Here's part of the interview. Larry, do you share Billy Graham's belief of life after death in a sense of going somewhere? Olstein, I do. I do. We probably agree 99%. I do, I do believe uh, there's a heaven, you know. After, afterwards, there's, you know, a place called hell. And I believe it's when we have a relationship with God and his son, and that's what the Bible teaches, and I believe it. Later, King asks, is it hard to lead a Christian life, Olstein? I don't think it's that hard. To me, it's fun. We have joy and happiness, our family. I don't feel like that at all. I'm not trying to follow a set of rules and stuff. I'm just living my life, King. But you do have rules, don't you? We do have rules. This is Olstein. But the main rule is to honor God with your life, a life of, um, to live a life of integrity, not to be selfish, you know, help others. That's really the essence of the Christian faith. King, that, King asks another question, that we live in deeds? Olstein, I don't know. What do you mean by that? King says, because we've had ministers on here, on his program, um, who said, your record don't count. You either believe in Christ or you don't. If you believe in Christ, you are, you know, you are, you are, you are going to heaven. And if you don't, no matter what you've done in your life, you ain't. Olstein, yeah, I don't know. There's probably a balance between. I believe that you have to know Christ, but I think that if you know Christ, you're, if you're a believer in God, you're going to have some good works. I think it's a cop-out to say I'm a Christian, but I don't do anything. King, what if you're Jewish or Muslim and you don't accept Christ at all? Olstein, you know, I'm very careful about saying who would and wouldn't go to heaven. I don't know. King, if you believe, if you believe you have to believe in Christ, they're wrong, aren't they? Olstein, well, I don't know if I believe they're wrong. I believe, I believe, I believe here's what the Bible teaches. And from the Christian faith is what I believe. But I think that only God judges a person's heart. I spent a lot of time in India with my father. I don't know all about their religion, but I know they, they love God. I don't know. I've seen their sincerity, so I don't know. I know for me, what the Bible teaches, I want to have a relationship with Jesus. Hopefully, I don't have to point out all the problems with that. More recently, in an interview with Oprah Winfrey in 2016, a now former pastor named Carl Lentz, pastor of a Hillsong church in New York City, formerly, was asked by Oprah, do you believe that only Christians can be in relationship with God? Lentz, no. I believe that when Jesus said that I am the way, the truth, and the life, the way I read that, Jesus said that he is the road marker. He is the map. So I think that God loves people so much and that whether you accept or reject, he's still gracious and he's still moving and he's still giving you massive red blinking lights for a chance to take the right turn when maybe you've taken the left. But I believe God loves people 
And that's what the whole gospel is based on. It's love. Uh, These responses, as many of you can figure out, fail miserably at presenting the gospel from the scriptures based on what the Bible actually says. Instead, they present a, a, a belief, they present an idea based upon their personal beliefs. Did you notice that? You see, the question is not, what do I believe the Bible teaches? It's not the right question. The question is, do I believe what the Bible teaches? Those, those, are, those two questions both have seven words. They're the exact same seven words, but the order matters. The first one is, what do I, what do I believe about that the Bible teaches? That puts me in authority. See that? What do I believe about the Bible? The second question is, do I believe what the Bible teaches? The Bible is the authority. The Bible sets the the determination of what is and what is not true. And here's the good news. There is actually certainty. And there is actually clarity in the Bible regarding salvation. These two men seemed, for reasons unknown to many of us in the room, not, they were not able to spot how the Bible is clear on this, or willfully not spotting it. But let me share with you a couple of verses. Acts chapter 4, verse 12. There is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Can a Muslim... Can a Jewish person be saved? Will they go to heaven? Yes, they can be saved, but will they go to heaven? There is salvation in no one else. A Jew does not believe that Jesus is the Messiah. A Muslim does not believe that Jesus is the Messiah. There's only one name under heaven given among men by which we must, must be saved, and that is Jesus. And both Jews and Muslims reject Jesus as the Son of God. So no, no. A Muslim or a Jew set in their belief does not go to heaven. And neither do you and I, apart from Christ. Romans chapter one, verse 16 says, for I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. The gospel is the power of God and salvation. What is the gospel? It's the good news of what God has done through his son, Jesus. Acts 16, 31, they said to the Philippian jailer, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved, you and your household. How is one saved? By Jesus. There are far too many people who have been taught things that may sound fine, but have no biblical foundation. The danger is real. Just this week, I was talking to a friend who was telling me about a situation in their family. They had a family member pass away, a, a, young, a young boy, 12 years old. And the, uh, the, the uncle of that boy, or the grandfather, excuse me, of that boy, uh, said to my friend, well, he's in a better place now. And my friend, you know, not at that point, it's very fresh, obviously, didn't didn't go into it at that moment, but upon what evidence could we ever make such a statement? 
a statement like all good people go to a better place when they die is a lie. It's a damnable lie. They don't. Why? Because there are no good people. There are no good people. That's what Romans chapter 3 tells us. There is none that are good. So from the premise of the statement, it's wrong. But even if you thought that person was quote unquote good, that is not evidence that they go to heaven. And your goodness and my goodness doesn't qualify us for heaven. Apart from Christ, neither they nor we go to a quote unquote better place. In the second interview with Carl Lentz, he quoted part of John 14, 6. You heard him say it. I am the way, the truth, and the life. Jesus saying that. Which is enough. Even those, those three statements is enough to, to understand what Jesus is actually doing. But Jesus goes even a little more. He goes a little more clear. A little more explicit in the next sentence. The rest of verse 6, which Carl Lentz, for whatever reason, again, did not quote no one comes to the Father except through me. That's Jesus. So no, Oprah. No, you, you, you can't be in a relationship with God if you're not a Christian. Why? Because the only way you come to the Father is through the Son, Christ. And if you come to the Father through the Son, Christ, that makes you what? A Christian. So yes, only Christians can be in relationship with God. That's not some exclusive claim. That's not some way to say we got a club and you can't be part of it. It is exclusive. It's only through Christ. But it is inclusive in the sense that it says whosoever will may come. Many don't like the idea that some things are right and some things are wrong. <laughs> We live in a time, and this isn't new, but seems to be increasing, as many of us have observed, that there seems to be no absolutes anymore, right? It's kind of what, what you want to believe, you can, my truth, you can have your truth, I'll have my truth. There is truth. There is truth. Can't everyone just be right about how we get to heaven? No, that doesn't even make sense. It makes no sense. All roads lead to God. Well, if by all roads lead to God, you mean that at the end you stand before God? Yeah, you're right. All roads lead to God. But all roads do not lead to heaven. All roads do not lead to eternal life with God. All roads do not lead to everlasting peace with the Father in the new heaven and the new earth. There is only one. There is truth. This morning in Sunday school, Kurt was teaching from 1 John and noted the times that John speaks of truth. You can know. You can know things. The Bible is written so we can know things. We are to be people of the truth. In order to be people of the truth, we must know the truth. We must believe the truth and then speak the truth. Well, now to our message for this morning. Mark chapter 3. In our passage that was already read, Jesus, this does connect, stay, stay with me. Jesus will make clear who is in the family of God. 
Jesus makes some shocking statements here, some uncomfortable things maybe for those at the time. But he makes clear who is the true family of God. Theologian Danny Aiken summarizes Jesus' statements here in these five verses with, with three points, and we'll paraphrase them this morning. The first is, being physical descendants does not ensure being part of the true family of God. Look at verse 31. And his mother and his brothers came, and standing outside, they sent to him and called him. Now, if you were with us um, two weeks ago, or excuse me, last week, in verse 21, just run your eyes back up to verse 21 of chapter 3, and when his family heard it, they went out to seize him, for they were saying he's out of his mind. And then verses 22 through 20, uh, verse 30, 22 through 30, is a different Um, narrative. So Mark inserts this narrative with the scribes in between these two two statements about the family. So he leaves off talking about the family in verse 21, and now he's picking it back up here in verse 31. So Jesus' family, that's Mary and his brothers, had come to Capernaum to stop him, to seize him. We looked at this last week. One one just quick note here. Uh, Jesus had brothers, And elsewhere we find that Jesus had sisters. Those would be half-brothers and half-sisters. Which just on a side note for our our Catholic friends, this means that that clearly Mary was not a perpetual virgin, which matters to their theology. The Bible states that she had other children. Clearly, she was not perpetually a virgin. Keep going here. And so they come. And clearly they cared for him, or else they wouldn't have come. But clearly they also misunderstood him because they wanted to stop him. Verse 32, and a crowd, and a crowd sitting around him, and uh, they said to him, was sitting around him, excuse me, and they said to him, your mother and your brothers are outside seeking you. Okay, so you get the picture. Um, in this house, Jesus is there. He's with his disciples. He's with the religious leaders, Pharisees, scribes, and there's a crowd of people. And then outside the house is his family. That's a kind of a painful picture for us to to think about. That his family was on the outside. His family didn't get him. The family actually wanted to stop him. They not only didn't get him, they also weren't interested in what he was saying. They wanted him to stop saying it. Thankfully, the scriptures, as we continue to read them, we understand the family, some family, would actually come to faith. But Jesus would not be deterred, even from his own family. I mean, some of us have a fear of man problem. We want everyone to be happy with us, everyone to be pleased with us, our families to be proud of us. And so sometimes we might not do certain things because we don't want to disappoint other people. Here, his family is disappointed with him. But Jesus would not be deterred even from his own family. He knew the mission and he would pursue it relentlessly until it was accomplished Paul follows this example in Acts chapter 20, verse 24, when he says, I do not count my life of any value nor precious to myself, if only I may finish my course in the ministry that I received from the Lord to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. J.C. Ryle writes this, So let it be with all true servants of Christ. Let nothing turn them for a moment out of the narrow way or make them stop or look back. 
Let them not heed the ill-natured remarks of enemies. Let them not give way to the well-intentioned but mistaken entries of unconverted relations and friends. Let them reply in the words of Nehemiah, I am doing a great work and I cannot come down. Let them say, I have taken up the cross and I will not cast it away, end quote. May that be said of us. Well, upon hearing about his mother and his brothers, Jesus responds in verse 33, and he answered them, who are my mother and my brothers? That might seem like an innocuous statement to us, but in an ethnocentric, family-centered culture that placed a high value on family, even a sacred view of family, this statement was actually shocking. This statement would, would have been surprising for people to hear. It sounds like Jesus is dismissing his family. He is not. He's not devaluing the family. God's plan is the family. God's design is the family. And it has great significance in society. However, like any good gift, it can become an idol. Do you know that? That your family can become an idol. It happens when when family becomes the functional center of our life where we make decisions always and only determined by, quote, what's best for the family. That is not the only consideration when we make a decision. It is a consideration. It is not the only consideration. If family becomes the idol, then our life functionally then begins to center and operate and orient itself around that and not God. This can swiftly move into what one, one theologian calls familial narcissism where it becomes all about family. That sounds good on the outside until our priorities are out of alignment. As important as family is, it is never, it was never intended to be idolized. No idol can live up to our hopes and dreams. It will mislead, it will always disappoint, and in the end, it will crush us. The point then is to put God first. The point is that that obedience to his will is foremost. When we love and obey God first, we will love our families best. Jesus saying this, who are my mother and my brothers, is not ignoring or abandoning the family. That's not what he's suggesting here. Later in the Bible, 1 Timothy chapter 5, verse 8 tells us, if anyone does not provide for his relatives, especially members of his own house, household, he has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. Clearly, Jesus isn't saying to ignore or abandon your family in order to follow God. He's also not saying that we sever family ties. When Jesus is on the cross, he looks down at his mother and says to the disciple, disciple, your mother, mother, your son, you're going to take care of my mom. He cared for his mother. He cared for his family. In Mark chapter 7, he talks to the religious leaders about how they should be caring for their parents. But Luke, in chapter 14 of Luke, helps us understand, though, that this loyalty, this love for God, will sometimes, comparatively, make our love for family look like hate. He actually says, if you don't hate your family, you can't be my disciple. He doesn't actually mean hate your family. What he means is that, comparatively speaking, it'll look like that. Because your priority, your ultimate um, authority, your ultimate priority will be God. His will will always be put first, even above family. Jesus was saying the family, his true family, 
the true family of God is not biological, it's not racial, it's not cultural, it's spiritual. For us today, some of us have grown up in a, a Christian home. We have Christian heritage, we have Christian parents or grandparents. And sometimes we can kind of follow in those footsteps of, of living like a Christian and not being a Christian. And assuming that I'm part of this long line of, of Christians, I'm kind of part of the club. I'm kind of like I'm married into it, I'm born into it, I'm, I'm, I'm part of it. But as has been said, God has no grandchildren. He only has children. So you must, we must individually come. There's no uh, descendants, there's no physical descendants of, of Jesus or relations with Jesus or even relations with other Christians that make us part of the family of God. Secondly, we can see in verse 34 that being interested in Jesus does not equal being part of the true family of God. Look at verse 34. And looking about at those who sat around him, he said, here are my mother and my brothers. Remember, there's a lot of people in there, right? We just noted that the crowds in there, the scribes, the religious guys, and the disciples are all crammed in here. It says he looks around at those who uh, he looks at those who sat around him. So who is he referring to? He's referring to everybody? Looks at everybody, says, you're, you're all my brothers and you're all my, my mother. Clearly not everyone was part of the family. Right? That makes logical sense. And as you read the Bible, you find out that Jesus had crowds follow him, yes, but none of them stayed. In fact, most of them left. Throughout the, throughout the Gospels, we find people periodically following him no more, not believing Jesus knew that. And so when he looks around at all these people, he, he can't be suggesting that they're all part of the true family of God. Well, in the parallel account in Matthew chapter 12, verse 49, Matthew writes it this way. And stretching out his hand toward his disciples, he said, here are my mother and my brothers. What is Jesus doing there? Jesus was saying that his family are the ones who believe the ones who believed him, the ones who followed him. You see, being interested in Jesus does not equal being the family of God. So coming to church does not equal being part of the family of God. Reading the Bible does not mean that you're part of the family of God. Being interested in spiritual things does not mean you're part of the family of God. Having your parent tell you when you were five that you prayed a prayer does not mean you are part of the family of God. That is not what it means to be part of the family of God. So then what does? What's the qualifier for being part of the true family of God? Look at verse 35. For whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and sister and mother. Thirdly, we find that doing the will of God is evidence of being part of the true family of God. Luke chapter 8 writes it this way, My mother and my brothers are those who hear the word of God and do it. Jesus is not saying that we obey our way into the family. It's not what he's saying. He's not saying if you do the will of God, then you'll be saved. No, that's not what he's saying. Whoever does the will of God, it's evidence the evidence of our faith is that we do the will of God. We know that salvation is only by grace. 
It's only through faith, and it's only in Christ. Kent Hughes writes this, Obedience does not originate relationship with God. Faith does that. But obedience is a sign of it. That is the relationship with God. Obedience is the evidence of our faith. We are not saved by our obedience. We're not saved by works. Rather, we are saved for works. The works follow. The obedience follows our faith. Jesus here was not so much dismissing the natural family in this exchange, but he was emphasizing the spiritual family. See, if you're a Christian, you have more in common with your spiritual family than you do with unbelieving biological family. Now, you may not feel that that's true, but that is true. And not only that, but you're going to be with your spiritual family forever. So you better get used to it, right? Now, the point is that there is, there's more in common with our spiritual family than even our unbelieving natural family. Maybe you have felt that connection. Some of us who have been on mission trips to, to places where we've never, never even been before, don't know a soul, and we come to a place, and you come to a church you've never been to, right? And you meet someone, and you find out they're a Christian, and there's this instant connection, right? It, it's fast family. And the only explanation is that there's a common, there's something common, and it clearly is Christ, right? And it, and it makes us part of, and we know that we are then part of this, this family of God. It is obedience to the will of God that we experience family with God's people. It's in the context of obedience to God's will with God's people that we will experience true family. But in order to experience that family, it involves participation. Doing the will of God, yes, it is part of what it means to be the true family of God. But the connection with the family only comes as we participate in it. Hebrews 10, 23 through 25. Jesus was all about the will of God. Right? When we read through the Bible from a, from a child, he's at the temple, remember this? And the parents are saying, what are you doing? He says, I must be about my father's business. When he's at the woman, with the woman at the well in, in John 4, uh, about the will of God. When he's in the garden, not my will, but yours be done. Jesus was all about the will of God. So too, it is to be with us. But in order for us to do the will of God, we must know the will of God. In order to know the will of God, we must know God. To know God, we must know his word. And to know his word, we must read his word. Came across these graphics uh, this week. Uh, this first one talks about how long it takes to read the Bible. So if you were to complete reading the Bible in two years, it would take you six minutes of reading every day. In a year, it's 12 minutes a day. Six months, it's 25 minutes a day. Three months, 50 minutes. In one month, it's two hours and 29 minutes a day. This uh, individual who put this out says, on average, users in the USA spend two hours and three minutes on social media every day. On average, users in the United States spend four hours watching videos per day. 
Now you might say, well, that's not me. I don't remember. Okay, okay. all right. This isn't about judgment, right? The point is, he's saying this. We do a whole lot of other things to take up our time. The reason we don't read our Bibles is not because we don't have time. The reason we don't pray is not because we don't have time. John Piper has remarked, Twitter will be, will be the, the, the great um, uh, revealer that, that we have wasted time. That for our prayerlessness, we have no, we have no reason. We have no, um, we, we have no excuse. Right? Social media is evidence that we have plenty of time. We're just using it for the wrong things. He cites two uh, stats from research done by Lifeway Research in 2019. And on the left, you see the amounts of the Bible read by Americans. Americans, not Christians, just Americans. And you can see there uh, those who read um, all of it is only 11%. All of it and more than only 9%. And then on the, the right side, you see the frequency of Bible reading among Protestant church goers. You say, well, it's better than the other side. Yeah, but every day is 32%. That's not good. That is not okay. I heard of one atheist professor who greeted his uh, freshman class by uh, asking them, um, do, you, do you believe the Bible? And uh, many of them would raise their hands. Do you consider yourself a Christian? Many of them raise their hands. Do you believe the Bible is the word of God? Many of them raise their hands. You, you think everything in there is th- that, that God has said is true, and they raise their hands. And he says, how many of you have read the entire Bible? And the number of hands were far less. The point is, is if, if we're going to be um, careful to be about the will of God, then we ought to know what the will of God is. And if you're going to know what the will of God is, then you need to read his word. We must know the word if we're going to know his will. Here are just two verses about God's will. We could spend much time on this. But Matthew chapter 7, verse 21 says, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Think it's important to do God's will? First, Timothy, First John chapter 2, verse 17 the world is passing away along with its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. Elsewhere, the Bible tells us that the will of God is our salvation. The will of God is our sanctification, that we become more like Jesus. If you're here this morning and you're not living in obedience to God's will, if you're not even interested in living in obedience to God's will, then the evidence for being part of God's true family is suspect at best. And quite frankly, it should be a warning. It should serve as a warning to us that if our hearts are not set on doing God's will, then what does that say about our heart? And if we don't want to do God's will, then do we want God at all? We become part of Jesus' true family through the new birth, right? through coming to him, through Christ. Then we become the children of God and God becomes our father. This new birth, this new spiritual family is all grace. It's not something we can do. It's only made possible by and through Christ. First John 1 says this, 
John writes, he, is talking about Jesus, came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. Being part of the family of God is God's business. He saves. He opens blind eyes. He offers us faith to believe. And in response, we are to do his will. As we come to the table this morning, we see again how the work of Jesus on the cross paid for our sins, made a way for us to be forgiven and brought us into the family of God. That is those who have repented and believed. If you know God as your father this morning, if you have repented and believed, if you are trusting in Christ and Christ alone this morning, we invite you to participate. We invite you to receive this bread and this cup. But if you're with us this morning and you have yet to repent of your sins, yet to to trust Christ as your savior, or if you're in known unrepentant sin, then we caution you from observing this supper. In fact, we ask for you to abstain, to not take of the body and the blood of Jesus in an unworthy manner, in the words of the Apostle Paul. But instead, even where you are, to repent and to receive the forgiveness of Jesus. As we prepare to receive this bread, would you pause for a moment and examine our heart and ask God to open our eyes to any sin in our life that we may confess it before him now. Father, we pray that you would hear the prayers of your people, prayers of those who sit in these pews this morning. As we seek your forgiveness, God, we do so with confidence that if we confess our sins, you're faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. For your forgiveness, we give thanks. And Father, we ask for your blessing now on this bread. As we receive it, may we remember the body of Jesus. The Apostle Paul writes, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night that he was betrayed took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me.
Father, for this cup, as we drink, we remember the blood of Jesus that was shed for the remission of our sins, for the forgiveness of our sins. Without it, our sins could not be forgiven. So as we receive this cup, God, we give thanks. We do so in the name of Jesus. Paul continues, in the same way he took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as oft as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as oft as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Oh God, thank you for your son. Your son who came to give us life, to offer forgiveness of our sins, to bring us into relationship with you, to make us family. We could call you our father, Christ our brother, Father, we pray for those with us today who might not know you. We pray that they would see Jesus today as the Savior they need. For those of us who do, God, we pray that we would live out what we say we believe. That those around us would see the evidence in our obedience to your will. Help us, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.